0: This is UCD Business Impact, a podcast series from UCD College of Business, Ireland's leading business school. And each week we'll be joined by world-renowned academics from across the College of Business, as well as industry leaders to discuss the most compelling business issues facing Ireland and the world. Our experts each week will offer insight, spark curiosity, and challenge you to rethink how you do business in a changing world. I'm your host, Emmett Oliver, financial editor and journalist, and lecture at New City College of Business. Now, a very special guest on today's Business Impact podcast and that's the Minister for Finance Pascal Donohue. He's been minister since June 2017 and he's had some tough times already. There was Brexit initially and now he's been catapulted into a separate public finances uh, challenge with the arrival of the COVID crisis. He has been a TD for many years and previously held a number of other ministries, but he's also intriguingly worked outside politics in the private sector in the UK for Procter and & Gamble. And we'll talk a little bit about his background later on in the programme. But first of all, I want to welcome to, to this podcast, you're very welcome, Minister Pascal Dunahoo. Emma. good morning. Thanks for having me on. I pre- very much appreciate you joining us for this uh, edition um, as we kick off February, hopefully a lot better month than January was. Now, listen, I wanted to talk about my own impressions of you, first of all, <laughs> which are two things that always strike me. As I said in the intro, you're, you're not what we, what we call now somewhat snidely a professional politician. What I mean by that as somebody who has only ever worked in politics you have as i said had an interesting career outside politics and i would for one at least believe that's that's a good background to have and secondly I was intrigued by your use of the soapbox during the recent general election, where you you put it down on the ground, walked around the the streets of Dublin Central, and were happy to take all comers on in your exchanges. I think that was an interesting experience, and we might talk about that a little bit later on as well. But let's talk about what's in front of us at the moment. Um, We're pretty much a year on from when this um, pandemic reached these shores from Asia. Um, did you appreciate uh, and your officials as well, just how serious this was going to be from the start when you heard those initial reports from uh, from China, or did you see it as more likely to be a localized event like a SARS or a MERS? or how did you first see this coming on your own sort of personal radar?
1: Well, so for the very early phase of becoming aware of the disease and being notified of us, for the very early phase of us, uh, we did see it as being, uh, as something that was likely to be contained to particular parts of the world Uh, but that did begin to change quite quickly uh, as we began to understand how contagious it was uh, and uh, we began to see all of the risks that could be involved in travel Um, and towards the end of january and then in particular in early february the scale of us uh, began to become uh, very clear to us here in Ireland, but even at that point, it was really the events in Italy uh, that brought home to us uh, the scale of the challenge that we were facing in MS and what it could mean for our society and for our economy.
0: Now, you were in in the ministry since June 2017 and you had Brexit, of course, on your plate. I'm sure that consumed huge ministerial and organisational energy at the time. Um, I mean, have you really had a chance to, you know, there was kind of a crisis and then a crisis on top of a crisis. And uh, one of the things I was hoping to concentrate on this podcast is, you know, various crises over the years in the Department of Finance. But you probably haven't really had a chance to kind of draw any big conclusions about either Brexit or COVID yet, because it's just been coming at you in waves, literally.
1: Yes, that's that is true. And really, the period from uh, September 2019 to where we are now. Uh, does feel as if it has just been a a series of either resolving really big challenges or extraordinary new challenges arriving. Uh, We began at September of that year, uh, moving into the final phase of the Brexit negotiations. Then we had a budget getting ready for no deal Brexit. We then had the resolution of that phase of Brexit. From that we moved into a general election. And then from the general election, that we then moved into COVID. Across that phase of COVID, we were trying to form a government. Then saw the government being formed, and then we moved into the further challenges that COVID could bring. So um, the last eighteen months, Emerson Truth uh, have, uh, I think, brought a set of demands that uh, have been, I think, I can say, without precedent in Irish politics. Uh, because the experience of a world-changing pandemic arriving into your country is something that no finance minister has had to deal with before and no Taoiseach has had to deal with before and I have learned a huge amount uh, from uh, dealing with this that I think will inform other things that I do in the future. And Minister, in, in terms of when you first sat down and, and got your officials around the table,
0: uh, if you were even allowed to sit around the table at that stage, but, I mean, what was the first thing you guys were able to rely on? I mean, what, what was the manual that you took down? As you say, it's been completely unprecedented. So was there anything in the, the kind of annals of the department's own history you could call on, or was it all just completely brand new and kind of clutching around in the dark initially? Or what, what was your oh, kind so, of initial
1: approach? So much of it was so brand new because... If you look at the uh, history of the Department of Finance, and if you look at our own economic history, you know, we have so much experience of virtually every kind of difficulty that a modern economy can face. You know, if you look at where my predecessors would have been in the 50s, 60s and 70s, all of the currency crises and balance of payments difficulties they would have had to deal with. After that, then my predecessors getting ready to join the Euro. Um, The uh, roller coaster that was then involved in the modern Irish economy from the late 90s up to the great financial crisis. But with all of that happening, the experience of dealing with a pandemic didn't have any precedent. And the moment at which it became clear to us what were the economic consequences of this were actually around um, one particular weekend when the Department of Social Protection who would be you know, really quite brilliant have been able to anticipate the kind of issues that their own offices would have to face and in particular their intro offices would face, which are the offices that make available social welfare payments. Um, They made clear to government that they anticipated there would be many hundreds of thousands of our fellow citizens needing social welfare support and they made clear that as advanced as their systems were and as strong as their offices were, uh, that we were going to need to do something completely different to cope with that level of 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 demand and we would need to take steps to try to reduce that level of demand Um, and of course also at that point emma we were worried about the staff who would be involved in doing that work we were anticipating how many of them could become sick themselves due to the pandemic Um, and there was a particular number of days emma uh, and i can still remember the start of it when an official in the Department of Finance came in to me and said, you know, we could have hundreds of thousands of people unemployed uh, in a weekend. And at that point, we realised we would have to do things we'd never done before, which we did. Yes,
0: and and you've had an amazing, you know, amount of government, what they call the automatic stabilisers have have been switched on fully. Uh, Stimulus has been there. A number of different programmes, as you say, have been brought into play and very quick turnarounds on all of them. I mean, was there any sort of ideological, um, you know, battles inside the department or was everyone on the same page? Because there is a lot of times, um, you know, a Department of Finance perspective traditionally, which is to understandably fiscal you know responsibility and so on or did you find that everyone was very much seeing this for what it is which is a unprecedented
1: event it was actually everybody in the department was on the same page uh, because we saw it for what it was and actually you know you've used the interesting phrase there of the automatic stabilizers which as all your your listeners will know are, are policy measures that actually nearly implement themselves because of how they're designed So, for example, you know, you put in place a social welfare program, for example, like job seekers payments and because of how they are designed, people will automatically qualify for them and that's why they're referred to as automatic stabilizers. But one of the early insights that we had is a a judgment that our, our stabilizers would not be of the sufficient level. That would be required to actually stabilize our economy and our society and we also had a big concern that because of the quantity of people who would be looking to access these so-called stabilizers we were worried that our systems might not be able to cope with us and they might not actually be as automatic as they normally would be so we faced into a whole set of challenges about that but within the department, uh, we were all on the same page on us because the view of the department very strongly was we were facing a colossal collapse in our private sector, uh, a profound change in the level of income and demand in our economy. And the whole point of having, at that point, public finances that were in good condition and a state that is creditworthy is having the capacity to step in. these things happen. Uh, So there was complete agreement about the need to do it um, and then a huge amount of imagination was used to figure out how we could design the policies to do it. And Minister, do you think um, we went into this a bit
0: better than we did into the financial crisis? I know it's always uh, dangerous to compare two different historical eras but do you think we were in better shape to handle this than maybe we were back in 2007 and 2008?
1: Fundamentally, we were in a completely different position going into this crisis versus the last one, though, I do agree with you that we do need to be very mindful of the traps in creating equivalence between completely different economic, political and social events. But all that being said, going into this particular challenge, we we had, again, to use the terrible economic phrase, we had no uh, macroeconomic imbalances within our economy. We had very low levels of debt. We had levels of credit that were being created that were very, very moderate. Our national finances were at that point in surplus and were not requiring, and were not dependent on any bubbles within our economy to fund that level of composure in our national finances. And then critically, we had an employment market that was far more, uh, you know, consisting of far more different sectors than it had before. So we had a jobs market that had many different engines of job growth and job retention. So on, on, on every different uh, level, the economy was so different to where we were a decade ago. And that has been critical as we've moved through 2020 and into 2021 in helping us deal with the consequences of this crisis. And then of course, we had a global central banking community that had a completely different view on this crisis to again, where we were a decade ago, reflecting of course, the fact that it was a different crisis.
0: Now, as you say that the world does look different ideologically, politically and economically, Um, the deficit is running at about 19 billion euros, uh, the outturn for last year, obviously it's far too early to to be definitive about this year, there's so much uncertainties in the mix, but a lot of people looking in, uh, Minister, will ask uh, how long can we go down this road, how long can we stay in this preventative kind of phase by uh, you know, protecting and insulating ourselves from the worst effects of this pandemic. I mean, there's a big debate going on about deficits and how important they are and whether we need to be concerned about them at all. And and you're, you're a little bit uh, kind of observing a lot of these things, I suppose, because you're the man who has to make the final decisions. I mean, does it concern you that, that as the years go on and the pandemic remains kind of elusive that it will become harder to sort of maintain our current policy or, or do you not see it like that?
1: Mm-hmm. Economic policies are so intertwined into the the development of the disease, and if you look at the level of deficit that we have here in Ireland, which though it is very very big, is very much in the middle of the pack versus deficits that have been run in other developed economies across the world. My judgment is that as long as we are in a position where governments are requiring businesses to close or to massively restrict their trading due to public health policy. As long as that is happening, the conditions will be created to allow the deficits to be in place to fund the economic response back to that. So in many ways, the uh, the, uh, kind of causal chain in all of this is where we are with public health policy. But the corollary of that is, to your point, Emma, that when public health policy changes through the consequences of vaccination, through our ability to contain the disease and so on, that then in turn will lead to changes in economic policy as well that will affect then our ability to fund the kind of deficits we have at the moment. So we can do what we're doing for now, but we will come to a point in which what we are doing will not be required, nor will we be able to fund it in the way we are now. And it will be the job of myself and the finance ministers of the future to identify that point in time, uh, to anticipate it, and then to have the policies in place that that itself is not an economic event or a political event, that causes further difficulties with the Irish economy. Yeah,
0: and are, are you studying at all what um, Chancellor Sunak is doing in the UK? He, he seems to be of the view um, that some kind of early tightening needs to be done in the public finances. Uh, and some of it might be to Ireland's advantage because he's talking about raising corporation tax rates, for example. But he has a few other items he's looking at as well. He seems to be of the view that, you know, it's a good idea to kind of do a little bit of tightening early to sort of uh, set a set of, uh, a trajectory, I suppose. I mean, do you have any sympathy with that view or is the UK economy so different that there's not much lessons for us there at all, really?
1: Oh, there's always lessons in the decisions that the finance ministers make. Um, And I would have certainly an understanding of the view uh, that Chancellor Sunak has there, but we'll see what he actually does in early March when he delivers his budget. Um, Because I would imagine the indicators, Emmett, that he'll be looking at at that point will be very, very similar to kind of things that I'll be looking at, which is where are we with employment within the economy and where are we with trading conditions for businesses? You know, at this point in time, I think we'll get to March and we will see an improvement on where we are with the disease in terms of a further reduction in community transmission. But I would also imagine that by the time we get to early March, the change in public health guidance would be quite gradual from where we are at the moment. That might make it um, uh, difficult or potentially counterproductive to be putting in place, you know, so-called consolidation measures now. And the, the, the big thing that will fund most of the deficit reduction that most finance ministers will need to deliver will be getting people back to work. Uh, so, for example, the single biggest source of national finance improvement for our country will be the hundreds of thousands of people who are now on the pandemic unemployment payment, and getting them back to work. And then the gap that is left from a deficit point of view, when we get to that point, will then be the gap that you'll have to consider as to whether that requires further policy measures. But Emma, I can honestly tell you, like I think we're, you know, that particular bridge is still a fair few bridges away, and we have a few further big steps to complete before we get to that point. And
0: I think you're absolutely right to point back to uh, uh, what happened in 2008. There has been an ideological shift there. Um, You've seen books like The Deficit Myth coming out from economist Stephanie Kelton, for example. Um, Obviously, the ECB is very supportive of Ireland's debt position and is buying a lot of our bonds uh, in the secondary market and so on. And um, These things are kind of shifting under our feet are a little bit. And to go back to someone uh, like a um, now see finance minister, Brian Lennon, he just didn't have, he just wasn't inhabiting that sort of world. Um, I suppose you have the benefit of lower rates. You have the benefit of the ECB, which, you know, the counterfactual would be, what would it all be like if we didn't have those things? But I suppose that's for a late night discussion many years from now for, for historians and so on. But do, do you follow these debates about what governments can do? You know, what are the limitations? Um, some of the issues you've talked about there, Chancellor Sunak, you know, is obviously touching upon some of these themes. I mean, are these something that you watch uh, closely and, and might influence some of your future decisions yourself?
1: Well, as, uh, the, the other role that I'm very privileged to have is President of the Eurogroup, uh, which it's my job to chair and to court the, to chair the Eurogroup meeting that happens every month, which is all finance ministers who share the euro as their currency. I chair those meetings and then coordinate getting ready for them and the output that comes out from them. So it's not just the case of following these debates, it's actually, uh, and I'm very lucky that it is the case for me, I'm very lucky to be an actual participant in those discussions. Uh, uh, So I follow very actively and carefully the different views in relation to the issues that you're talking about. And for example, you know, Stephanie Kelton that you mentioned there a moment ago, who, you know, is a leading proponent of the whole concept of modern monetary theory, um, and, you know, as, as kind of encapsulated in her recent book that you mentioned there. I think it's worth saying though, and worth acknowledging that for many of the economists that are leading proponents of that view an explicit assumption of many of them is that you're a policy maker in an economy that has its own currency. Whereas for Ireland, we are sharing a currency with many, many other countries. And that in turn, of course, affects the policy choices that are open to us. Um, But, you know, from the IMF to the OECD, to the World Bank, to what is happening in you know, the views of central bankers on these issues. It is fair to say that the policy and intellectual architecture for dealing with this crisis reflects two things, like what we have learned from the last crisis, and secondly, an understanding that this crisis is completely different to the last one. It didn't originate in the financial sector. It isn't due to economic policy decisions that were made it's biological in nature and an appreciation of what we have learned and the fact that this is a different crisis has fundamentally altered the policy options that are being considered at the moment and then indeed have been implemented.
0: Minister in recent days you, you um, your department were have to be congratulated for something that I noticed which was you published a, a public debt document and in that document, you outlined the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities and threats uh, that the face the economy and our national debt. You know, it, it's a transparent thing to do to put out there on the table. What are the challenges? What are the, the vulnerabilities in our national economic system? You know, we that's the kind of thing we should be doing uh, and, and we probably should have done in the past. Um, first of all, any reflections on that exercise itself? And any of the things that you would be worried about in there, one that sort of stuck out to me was the corporation tax concentration. I mean, we're bringing in about 12 billion now, you know, which is great to have it, obviously. Um, it's up 8.7% on the year. It's probably almost half of our income tax at this stage. It seems just on the surface, a lot of money um, proportionately when you compare it to income tax. Is that the kind of the main threat or vulnerability that you see when, when you publish these kind of documents?
1: Well, certainly one of them, and um, of course, while it is something that we would habitually see as a vulnerability, it's also proving to be a remarkable strength at the moment in terms of not only the income, the tax revenue it's generating, but also the deeply valuable role it is playing in protecting employment within our country. So uh, due to the scale of FDI employment that we have. uh, So it's certainly an issue that I've been long aware of. It's one of the reasons why I was so determined to move our national finances to a position of surplus, you know, in, in that alternative universe in which we weren't dealing with COVID-19, we would probably have a surplus for 2020 of between two and a half and three billion euro. Uh, but, you know, it ultimately turned out we weren't going to be in that place and we ended up running a massive uh, deficit instead. Uh Probably the, the broader concern that I would have, and awareness regarding the sustainability of our national debt, is the fact that our national income itself uh, has a very large component to us that is intellectual capital, that is innovation. And that kind of innovation and its location in Ireland and its, and its, its registration in Ireland as its current home you know, isn't something that we can ever take for granted, that can assume that will always be the case. And, you know, any big changes in that can have a considerable effect on the debt dynamics of our country and the portrayal of and um, presentation of our national debt. So I'd probably identify that as being as a, a risk that would be uh, equivalent to the change in corporate tax flows which again, was one of the reasons for trying to get to a surplus. And that is a journey that, you know, at a point in the future, Emma's will have to commence again.
0: And Minister, I I don't want to play the game of asking you what's going to be in budgets uh, later this year, so I'm not going to ask you about that. But what I'm going to ask you about is, the sort of where you see the future over the next few years, it, it, do you see us, the, the state has taken a bigger role, uh, you wrote a very interesting book review in the Irish Times in recent days about the role of the state, how big or small or medium sized it should be in all our lives, I mean do you see, without getting into the specifics, you can't do that to be fair, but do you see us having to pay more tax? Do you see us having to have a bigger state, whatever way we go, because we have climate change, we have ageing? You've mentioned corporation tax uh, vulnerability there. I mean, do you see whatever way it goes and whoever pays the bills, I mean, tax couldn't come from a number of headings, but do you see us sort of paying more um, uh, to do more? Is that is that the sort of the, the ver- version of the state you see in future years in, in, well, in general? I, I,
1: I guess the context to the answer that I'm about to give is that The state is all is the the modern trend of developed states in the aftermath of the great financial crisis is that they have been getting incrementally bigger. For lots of different reasons, but the general trend is a steady growth year after year, and I expect that steady growth to continue and if that steady growth continues uh, that will have you know, consequences that are entirely manageable for an economy that will have the capacity to grow again in the aftermath of us beating COVID-19. You know, your broader question regarding how big the state is going to get. Um, I, I, I think at this point in time, we can say there are particular parts of our society and our economy in which there is likely to be a consensus for a bigger role for the state. And in particular, I would say public health. You know, I think it is very likely uh, in our future, we will always have a test and trace capacity available for Ireland. We will have a developed public hospital bed capacity that is likely to be permanently bigger as a result of living with a pandemic. Uh, Will other parts of our state grow as well? At at this point in time, it's more difficult to say uh, because I am not sure what the new equilibrium will be once we exit this phase of the pandemic. I think the two things that will be important though is that if we do as a country decide that we do want a broadly bigger state, this has to be a conscious decision it can't be a organic drift to ending up with a bigger state. And the second reason why I believe it has to be a conscious decision is, in turn, if we do want a bigger one, uh, then we have to pay for it. You know, we, we will you know, not be able to have an ongoing you know, you know, permanent biggish deficit. Because, for example, we want a bigger state and expect the savings of other countries to pay for us. We will have to make that decision ourselves. And I would expect, Emma, these are the kind of issues and debates that we will have to confront, particularly in 2022, because my anticipation is that we're going to spend much of 2021 trying to deal with the immediate consequences of an economic and public health emergency
0: and finally minister because i know you're under time pressures um i just wanted to reflect a little bit with you on the uh, the subject on theme of crisis and um, we again i'm conscious very much that we're not out of this crisis we, we may not even be in the middle of it I, i'm not an immunologist and uh, neither are you so neither of us really know but i do want to talk a bit about crisis and crisis crisis management i mean how do you think taking your political hat off for a second how do you think the political system in ireland has performed as a crisis manager obviously we can go through all the various items and there has been mistakes we all know that there's been a a terrible death toll for many families but leave that for aside as as a crisis goes for the moment i mean how do you think the system has girded up i mean how do you think you'd score us as a kind of an institutional entity you know have we performed well or not well or what's your thoughts and reflections on that
1: and I think, your, you know, your your question acknowledged the uh, vital caveat in answering a question like this, which is that we are talking about the loss of life and we are talking about the uh, uh, how many people are now no longer with us today and what that means uh, for, for them and their families. Uh, so I think it's so important to be, you know, cognizant of the sorrow the tragedy and loss of life in in answering a question like that uh, however what i would say is that i think we can plausibly make the case that our system has been successful in preventing the loss of life uh, on even greater levels than we could have faced into that our economic supports have played a very valuable role in protecting income and protecting the viability of employers at a time of a pandemic, and our broader state institutions, such as the Gardaí, such as our local authorities, those systems, for want of a better phrase, that you really depend upon when you are dealing with such an emergency that they have performed well in meeting the challenges that they faced. And look, When you're answering a question like this, Emmett, the risk is always there of confirmation bias, that that which you believe about a society or about a situation is going to be confirmed by the actions that you see taking place. And then also that risk of confirmation bias is multiplied because, of course, I've been a a participant in the decisions as opposed to an analyst of them. But with all of those caveats in mind about recognising the tragedy and the loss of life and the loss of health, and also the fact that answering a question like this always runs the risk of confirming the views that you have anyway, I'd still respectfully make the case that I think our systems and our society have responded back to an extraordinary challenge i i think
0: you're you're right and and one of the issues you always have to do in those kind of questions that i've asked you is what what is what is success what is failure you know it, it's individual if you're one of the um people who have lost a relative you know this is is, 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 is a trite question really and then I suppose those who've had businesses closed and livelihoods damaged again it really goes back to your own personal situation how you judge the answer so I, exactly. I mean, it's an unfair one to ask you but i just wanted to get a reflection on you know, as you mentioned, certain arms of the government, the guardy, the health services, the healthcare workers, we, we can see how well some parts have stood up. Um, Obviously we're in the middle of the vaccine rollout, I think the, the verdict has yet to be given on that because we are literally, uh, you know, we're trying to get supply in and so on, so that that is sort of an embryonic sort of situation, it's evolving, it, it's very much dynamic, so we're not sure what's going to happen there. But I do think, um, just before I let you go, when it comes to financial crises, I do, as I mentioned earlier, because I dealt with him a lot, I, I found him an interesting minister at the time, Brian Lennon, at the time of the financial crisis. You're now in the same seat. I mean, the economic part of it is still to play out. We have large deficits. They are going to have to be brought under control at some point. The debate is probably more about the timing of uh, that process and how it plays out. But are you optimistic about our economic futures after this period? Do you think we, we could come out in good order or, or, or do you have fears that there there are other things waiting for us in the grass, like climate change and sustainability and so on, that, that are sort of waiting there once we get over this particular crisis that has lasted so far about a year?
1: I'm very optimistic, Emmet. Uh, I believe our economy and our society will recover and I'm already seeing indicators in our performance during the pandemic from an economic point of view that reaffirm that confidence. Um, we'll get our country back to work we will rebuild jobs we will help employers uh, that have a viable future and so many of them do we'll help them get back on their feet Uh, so we are going to get through this crisis we're going to get to better days and to brighter days it has been so hard it has gone on now for a long time but we have the measure of this disease and i do believe uh, that uh, as we move through this year particularly the second half of the year we'll see the very clear and visible signs of a recovery taking place in our country.
0: Okay, Minister, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate you making time for us at what is an extraordinarily busy and dynamic period in Irish government, Um, and we do appreciate you joining us on the podcast.
1: Thanks very much,
0: Anders.